On today's episode, I am doing a Han Solo Kessel run, uh, but I react to headlines uh, from the from the news, especially the recently concluded NAR mid-year, and I make a absolutely crazy proposal because I am flying solo. This is Industry Relations, a podcast that's at the intersection of real estate and technology from an insider's perspective with Rob Han and Greg Robertson. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Industry Relations. Uh, this is your co-host, the notorious Rob, Rob Han. And I say co-host uh, because that's what I am. But today, uh, unfortunately, due to some last-minute emergencies popped up, uh, I'm apparently flying solo. So as our producer pointed out, that would make this a Han Solo episode. But I'm like big dad energy. Um so uh, this was obviously unplanned. Uh, so, you know, Greg and I had were thinking like, hey, we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about that. I was going to ask about mid-year, all these things. But here I am. You only get me. And since it's very, very difficult to just yammer on for an hour, uh, I honestly don't know how some of these podcaster, YouTuber type people do it. Solo. I mean, I understand conversation. You could go three hours. That's easy. I can do that. But man, talking by yourself just for an hour, I'm not sure. So this might be a relatively short episode. Um, what I thought I would do, given that, you know, this is sort of a last minute, you know, sprung on me kind of thing. So I thought I would just kind of go to news websites and sort of react and discuss some of the things that some of the things that have been kind of at least in the industry news. Uh, so I thought I would start with Inman and just look at some of their headlines and just sort of respond. Right. So uh, the top headline I'm seeing on Inman right now is that real estate stocks are suddenly and finally on fire. Um, I guess. <laughs> What's the explanation? <sighs> You know, I think <clears throat> so. This is just my guess, and I, you know, let me actually open up this article, see what uh, see what they say. Uh, bears are gone, bulls are back in town. Redfin is up like fifty percent the last five days. Open doors up, um, and I own open, so I'm glad to see that compass is up. Everyone seems to be trending green. What is happening? Um, I think it's actually because. The world, the financial markets are in a way calling Jim, Jerome Powell's bluff. So there's a lot of conversation if you look at, you know, what's called FinTwit, so finance Twitter. If you look at some of the um, sort of finance and uh, macro guys, you know, on YouTube and places, which I, I love all of those guys. I would say that the dominant narrative going on right now is that the Fed has to pivot. And this is sort of the, the counter argument is Jerome Powell has made it perfectly 100% clear that's not happening. We're going to crush inflation. Um, there's, no, there's no discussion of pivot. There's nothing like that's happening. We're going to keep it high. We're going to keep going until we get to 2% inflation rate because inflation is you know, like the destroyer of societies. And I get that. But I do think if you look at sort of the bond markets, if you look at some of macro um, analysts, everyone seems to think that the Fed's going to pause, at least pause, 
maybe pivot. Depending who you listen to, there are some who think that the Fed's going to go back to like zero interest rate policy because, frankly, because the United States government is way too much in debt. And something I do talk about in my presentations as well, which is, look, it's one thing for Jerome Powell to raise rates aggressively and really try and kill inflation, as Paul Volcker did. But when Volcker did it, total U.S. debt was under a trillion. Today, it's over 31. I think it might be like 32. Uh, you know, there's all the debt ceiling fight and all this stuff that's happening. And it's not, it's not clear, really, that uh, the Fed can keep raising rates like this without breaking essentially the treasury market. You do that and it's like end of the world. So it seems like the markets have really priced in this notion of a Fed pivot, lower rates potentially. Um, the question, of course, is what happens if that happens? Well, housing explodes is what happens. And I think some of these, some of the housing stocks doing better is a bunch of the Wall Street guys making bets that the Fed has to cut rates or at least pause, right? At least like stop at the 5% and not keep it going. And if he, if the if there's any sign of dovishness on the Fed's part, then what it does is it really does juice housing once again. Uh, again, there are plenty of arguments as to why that can't happen, why that won't happen. But if I had to guess, it's, you know, some hedge funds, some some investors looking at this going, you know what, now's the time to kind of get in and buy cheap. And if we don't, you know, the, these stocks are so low price-wise, it's not that big a risk. Uh, those guys are professionals. They know what they're doing. So, all right. So, there's that. That's my take. I mean, I, am I right? I have no idea. I'm not an investment. I'm not an analyst. I'm not an investment advisor. None of this is investment advice. It's just trying to think why. Because if you look at some of the news that's come out in Q1, it's not been good. <laughs> like markets down like 40%. Like what's good about that? Like why are you buying now? So the only thing that kind of makes sense to me is is that. Uh, the other thing that it's on Inman, and I know it's been all over Twitter and all over Facebook, and at least in private messages that have been going back and forth, is that uh, NAR overwhelmingly voted to raise membership dues. And uh, I love this like, in alignment with inflation, right? So, uh, and I think the story actually said that it's in alignment with inflation, but really no more than 4%. I think I saw that somewhere. So it isn't as if inflation goes to 15%, then they're going to raise dues by 15% every year. But, you know, they uh, they did vote to raise dues um, and sort of indexed it to CPI. I don't really have a strong opinion about this because I'm like, whatever. You know, if NAR's... Uh, their membership organization, they're private. If the members and their representatives, which I put that in quotes, air quotes, because uh, if you know anything about how NAR directors are chosen, it's not really like an election per se. So to what extent you could say that they represent the membership, you know, there's some debates that could be had about that. But nonetheless, if the organization decides we want to raise rates, then raise membership dues, then go for it. You know, I mean, it's their call. The thing I found kind of funny, though, is I do just want to mention this, is that they index membership dues to inflation, which I kind of understand. But at the same time, if you look at the first, I don't know, let's say the last six months or so, the housing market is 
down and it's way down. I mean, you know, I think about some of the brokers, agents, team leaders I've spoken to the last three, four months. I'm, I'm going to say the average broker, the average agent's looking at like 30% drop year over year in business. The combination between fewer transactions and in some markets, the home prices are starting to drop slightly as well. So, I mean, like I said, hey man, it's it's your membership, it's your organization, set your dues wherever you want. <clears throat> but if you're going to say we're going to index to inflation because we need to be able to keep whatever, you know, keep doing whatever our mission is and whatnot, okay, that makes sense. But shouldn't you recognize that the inflation that really matters is not CPI in the general economy, but inflation within the housing industry? In fact, the matter is your members in the last year or so far this year, they're staring at 20, 30, 40% drop in revenues. It's like, I don't know, just timing just you know, strikes me as a little bit odd, you know, but hey, um, it is what it is, and um, I'm I'm happy for them. Like there you go. Uh, other NAR news, just because you know mid year just happened, so I think Edmund was there just covering all the things. Uh, they vote to require fair housing training for 1.5 million realtors. Um, I guess that's good. <clears throat> I mean, it's always good to have more training. Fair housing is a real issue, as we saw from the uh, Long Island uh, United thing. I, I mean, Long Island Divided report that Newsday did a few years ago. Um, so like, okay, that's great. And I'm just reading through this and it's like, it's a great day for fair housing. Uh, Rick Riley, the committee's chair declared after the board voted 785 to 50 in favor of the proposal. Proposal did not prompt any discussion on the floor. Um, and, uh, yeah, so they're going to require two hours of fair housing training every three years. Okay. <laughs> Excuse me. I, I, okay. I mean, I guess, so here's the thing. Let me try to be fair to NAR to some extent. To be fair to NAR, they only require two and a half hour realtor code of ethics training every three years. Um, so saying we're going to require two hours of, of fair housing training that's, you know, that's like almost the same as code of ethics training, which obviously NAR is going to think is super, super important. So from that sense, it's kind of like NAR saying, oh, this is an important issue and we really need to make sure that our members are are fully briefed to it. I guess what I'm laughing at is because I'm not an agent, I'm not a realtor, so I've never had to do any of this stuff. Like two hours every three years? Really? I mean... And we're calling that training? Like, I I guess. Uh, I just think about any, like, literally any activity that I, I'm involved with, right? Um, you know, continuing education in law. Like, I'm not a lawyer anymore, but it, it wasn't two hours every three years. I'll tell you that. Uh, you know, I don't know. I think about, like, I do competitive shooting. I probably spend, I don't know. 20 hours a year, like every year doing formal official training. Like it's just really two hours every three years, like two and a half hours every three years. Like that's what we're calling training. Like, 
all right, guys. I mean, do what you want, I guess. Yeah, do what you want. Um, but I don't know. This is uh, this this is a bit, you know, whatever. And I guess it it reminded me because one of the things, uh, one of the small little interesting exchanges that happened on Twitter uh, this past week is I saw a report come out from I think it's the Rally Durham. Uh, Realtor Association talking about how their member numbers actually went up in April, like 1.8% or something. And I'm like, that's really odd because if I look at the transaction numbers out of the same market, it's down something like 20%. So how do you have transactions fall, price fall, sales volume fall, but the number of realtors increase? And one of the people, I guess, whoever runs their social media account actually responded and said it's because a lot of folks who've been laid off decide that they're going to go get their real estate license uh, so they don't have to be unemployed. And my response to that was, look, after trying to figure out how to survive what's coming from the commission lawsuits, I can't think of a higher priority for realtor associates to work on than to make real estate fairly unattractive as an alternative to unemployment. I mean, maybe that's just me. I don't think it is because I've spoken to enough brokers and realtors and realtor leaders and agents over, over the years. But boy, that just sucks, right? I mean, literally, you have an increase in number of realtors, even though transactions are down, inventory is way down, there's nothing to sell, there's no activity. And yet, because for those people, it's better than saying I'm unemployed. It's better than getting unemployment insurance to go get your real estate license. I'm going to get into real estate now because I don't have a job. Like, yo, I know part – look, I get it. A huge part of it is that the states make the licensing a joke. I get that. I mean, you know, the story we talk about all the time is like how it takes like 40 hours of education to become a get a real estate license. It requires 2,000 to get become a hairdresser. Like – we talk about it all the time. But at the same time, go, okay, that's the state. There's nothing we can really do about the state. And the state governments have a vested interest in keeping their unemployment rates down. But for NAR to require two and a half hours every three years, guys, I mean, I'm just saying, <laughs> like, Maybe think about upping that number to make uh, becoming a realtor unattractive, you know, if you're unemployed. Uh, just a thought. And I, I, it's, it's, it's almost funny, like, the fact that if Greg were here, I know that Greg would be pushing back against me right now and arguing. But this one, I'm not sure that there's a whole lot to argue about. Like, you're a professional trade organization. Uh, literally, like, competence and professionalism is – what you do, like, I don't know, you know, maybe require more than two and a half hours, right? <clears throat> um, all right. So interestingly enough, I just have a question in the chat, literally from my producer. Hey, what, what will happen if the Fed doesn't back off, you know? So this is going back to the pivot thing. If the Fed doesn't back off and keeps raising rates, and this, this I think is why so many people um so many people are thinking that it's going to uh there's going to be a fed pivot 
the one of the things that it happens is the United States government, their interest expense goes out of control. So I think the number I cite is last year the federal government paid something like seven hundred and sixty-eight billion dollars in interest payments, which makes it, I believe, it's the fifth largest spending category, right? On interest payments, just paying interest on the $31 trillion in debt. And that was at sort of historically low interest rates that the Fed had put in place for a real long time. Now, rates are about 5%. And I don't have the number off the top of my head, but I know it's a pretty big chunk of that $31 trillion. I would say maybe like $9 trillion of it has to be renewed this year. Like that debt matures 2023, which means that the Fed either has to and not the Fed, the federal government, the Treasury, either has to pay off that loan, $9 trillion, which obviously it can't. It doesn't have that kind of money. Or you have to borrow to pay to retire the debt, you know, to roll over the debt. Well, if you're rolling over the debt at 5% rates or whatever, you know, at the higher rates that we have today, your interest payments now went from $760 billion to over a trillion dollars. Okay, we only collect about four trillion in tax receipts, so we're gonna spend a quarter of it just paying interest on the debt. Like, that's that's not happy. Yeah, that's that's a real tough thing to even think about. But even almost more importantly, because of that fact, so those the Fed goes to try and you know not the Fed again, the federal government goes and tries to sell Treasury bonds. Who's buying them? Like, does anybody think that this money will be paid back? I don't think so. I don't think there's anyone that believes that the United States will eventually pay back $31, 32000000000000 trillion in debt. I, I just don't. And now you're going to say that debt is even more expensive. So here's another $9 trillion that you have, you have to lend to the Fed at this higher rate. So in theory, you should get a better return. You should get more interest income. But... Are they ever going to pay it back? <laughs> it's it's one of those. So um, that's again that's the reason why the I mean the pivot people think that this is going to happen. I'm kind of in that camp because I I just don't see how we square the circle. You know, thirty one trillion. Okay, go to thirty two trillion. Lift the debt ceiling. Do whatever. All right, uh, fine. Okay, let's go to fifty trillion. Like if if people are willing to loan us money, I guess. But uh. I mean, I, I wouldn't, <laughs> you know, like I'm not, I'm not buying treasury bonds. No, thanks. I, I don't believe it. I don't believe that it's going to, it will get paid back. So if that happens, then what do you do? Well, it means monetize the debt. And what that means is it is not, it is not acceptable. There's no scenario where the government will allow the federal government to not pay its bills. And it, it, it really, I mean, you could talk about the full faith and credit and the honor of the United States and we have this giant military. Like, yeah, no, cool. I get that. I think the reason why they can't allow that to happen is like most of the spending of the federal government are in transfer payments. Their Social Security, their Medicare, you know, their, uh, you know, uh, unemployment, you know, basically like unemployment insurance, if you will, um, paying people to stay home. I mean, that's basically what it is. Most of the, the big spending items are these entitlements, 
And yeah, we could talk about entitlements at a high level and talk about the fiscal impact and how bad it is. I'm saying, but bring it down to the street level. Down to the street level, it means food stamps. It means like housing vouchers. It means medical care. It, you know, like you don't have those things, then what do you do? So if the federal government can't keep sending out things like social security checks and food stamp payments or whatever it is, our, our cities burn. Like we have massive like riots. We have, you know, it'll make the whole George Floyd thing look like a picnic. We have massive social unrest. Our cities burn. You know, hungry people are going to do what hungry people do. They're not going to wait. They're not going to be polite. They're not going to be like, hey, let's no. They're going to go loot their local stores. Um, it'll be really, really bad. So you can't let that happen, right? There's no scenario where we say, yeah, you know what? Federal government's just going to, yeah, we're not, we're not going to make the EBT payments like this. Like that's just not realistic, which means when the Fed then says, hey, we need to borrow $9 trillion more, somebody's got to buy it. And if there aren't enough like fools, like the international, like they're not buying it. China stopped buying treasury bonds a long time ago. I think Japan stopped buying, like some of the biggest buyers of treasury uh, bonds haven't been buying the last few years. Okay, well, that means the Fed has to buy it. And the Federal Reserve is already the largest buyer of treasury bonds. If you have a treasury auction that's about to fail, the Fed has no choice. Like they have to step in and buy all those bonds. Well, when you have the central bank buying the central government's own debt, that's called debt monetization. <coughs> and the problem with it is, of course, it's um, it's really inflationary, right? So on the one hand, Jerome Powell's going to be like, we're going to raise rates, you know, and crush the uh, mortgage borrowers. On the other hand, we're just going to print a shit ton of money so we could buy the federal government's bonds so that they can send out those transfer payments so that we don't have, you know, fiery riots going on in our streets. That's, that's a possibility, I guess. Um, so high rates, high inflation at the same time, economic growth collapsing. I mean, it's, it's a horrible, horrible situation. So that's that's what happens. The Fed doesn't back off, in my opinion. Again, like who the hell am I? I'm just some random guy talking to a microphone on the internet. Go ask your financial advisors. Go follow other people. They're way smarter than I am about any of these things. So um, returning back to the headlines, I want to talk about a headline that I don't see. And it sort of bothers me and concerns me that I don't see it. <laughs> and that is... Look, as I'm now, I'm not saying that this didn't happen. Okay, I'm not saying that these meetings were not held. I'm not saying that this topic was not discussed. I'm just saying I don't see this headline on Inman. I don't see this headline on Riz Media. I don't see this headline anywhere, which implies that if they had it, you know, it was just like kind of minor. It didn't make any news. Like you know, NAR didn't make some big announcement. There wasn't a huge board of directors vote around this topic, and the topic is housing affordability. I mean, I guess it bothers me because I feel like, especially the last two years, if there's anything that we have seen consistently, like consistently, are younger generations, millennials and Gen Z, who are older, like again, millennials are 40, y'all, um, saying we can no longer afford the American dream. We can't buy houses because housing is completely unaffordable. 
uh, prices are way up and now rates are way up. So housing affordability is the lowest point that it's, I think it's ever been. So for NAR to meet at mid-year and not address housing affordability at all, or at least in any significant way, like I said, maybe there were meetings, maybe there were panel discussions, maybe there were, you know, hearings and seminars, but not, again, not enough to, you know, to make the headlines. That's a little worrisome, right? Um, because in my mind, just as a society, as a country, <coughs> there aren't that many things that are more important to talk about than housing affordability. There, there really aren't. Maybe the, the dollar, you know, maybe monetary policy, uh, you know, like I, what else? I, don't, I actually don't think things like war in Ukraine is more important than housing affordability. Um, I don't even think that the whole like, what are some of the big hot topics? Uh, you know, socialist gender ideology or uh, illegal immigration or whatever. I actually think none of those are more important than housing affordability. Oh, inflation. Okay, inflation might be more important than housing affordability, but that's really tied to the sort of a monetary system. Maybe the bank failures. You know, that's more important, but there's nothing that realtors really. I mean, what what do we have to say about that? We work in housing. <clears throat> and for us to not talk about housing affordability in a significant way this year is just feels like a miss. You know, shouldn't we have come up with some ideas? Shouldn't we have done something to really address housing affordability? And, you know, and I'm saying like beyond just a standard narrative that's been peddled for the last 10 years, right? Oh, we need more inventory. I don't know. The demographics don't seem to suggest we need more inventory. Um, we need more, whatever, easier access to credit. That doesn't do anything about home prices. It just keeps the prices keep going up because credit is easier to get. Okay, well, now that credit is not as easy to get, now that we're looking at a recession straight in the face, and we'll get 5%, 6%, mortgage rates, like that, that's, out, that's out the window. So the fact that we didn't get any sort of real ideas, suggestions, anything around housing affordability is a little bit worrisome, right? Um, I did see that there were some additional conversations about, you know, like rent spree, I think just announced deals of four MLSs. So like rent is becoming a, a real thing for realtors and MLSs and brokers and agents think about. I'm like, cool. Yeah, about time. Like you should have been doing this. Uh, so that's a positive. That's a real positive. But at the same time, um, we got to go beyond that, right? I mean, because that's not, that's not really the American dream. That's not what kind of the realtor movement is based on. You know, the realtor movement is based on American home ownership. Under all is the land. So just to say we're going to just pivot to renter nation, I don't think is, is like the move. So, yeah, it's a bit disappointing. Um, so, from that standpoint, especially since I got to fly solo and I don't have Greg to b I bounce his ideas off, I thought I would actually just talk uh, on this podcast about an idea that I've posted on my Substack, and I'm going to do a full-on treatment later today, but figure out what the hell. You know, I'll just talk about it here. So I, I don't know. I got to call this something. Um, but I have a policy proposal. And uh, look, maybe someone somewhere 
should uh, should like really study it and really figure out if this is utterly insane and crazy or if there's something there and if so then maybe try to push it and make it a real policy proposal and that's this i guess for now i'm going to call it like owners not renters policy okay so here it is all right it goes like this there are three parts to this this proposal called the crazy rabhan uh, owners not renters policy proposal but the three parts part 1 we are going to tax rental income at an absolutely punitive rate and when i say absolutely punitive i mean like 50 to 75% tax rate on rental income okay so just yeah that makes it horrible but if you just did that on itself it would be just absolutely awful totally terrible policy connected with that are two others one we will make all transfers of residential real estate tax free and tax free meaning from income tax capital gains tax transfer taxes at the state and local level completely tax free so if you sell a house whatever dollar value that is you get all of it you don't pay taxes on any of it okay and then the third part that i'm proposing is i think we should make all income from purchase mortgages tax-free right those three together why what does that do i think it does a bunch of things number one i think it makes being a landlord a real estate investor seriously unattractive obviously right if every dollar rent you collect you got to give 75 cents of it to the federal government like who the hell wants to be a landlord <coughs> that's kind of the point at the same time if you if you sell your investment property then you're going to be able to sell it entirely tax-free so you receive all the proceeds tax-free it incentivizes certain people well i guess it incentivizes all landlords but it even incentivizes people who don't own rentals to start thinking about selling their house and this was uh i think it was um who was it it was mcbride um there was someone who kind of proposed this idea of we should grant some sort of a tax leniency tax freedom for people who are 65 and older who are sitting on top of houses that they bought when they were 30 for 100,000 now it's worth 2 million and they don't want to sell because they don't want to pay the the tax they would rather just die and they leave that house to their to their heirs to their children because when you do that there's something called the step up in basis so you don't pay the tax i mean it's you know um already if you sell your primary residence you can exclude either up to 250,000 if you're single up to 500,000 if you're married uh from sort of the tax right but even so fine we're married we bought a house back in 1993 again let's just say for 400,000 and now it's 2 million dollars sure we can exclude 500,000 of it but we have a 1.6 million dollar gain we have to pay capital gains of 1.1 million of it. It's unattractive. We're not selling. And this is long before we get into conversations about like, I have a 3% mortgage rate. Why would I sell and then get a 6% mortgage rate? It's long before any of that. These capital gains taxes make it, it disincentivizes listing your homes. So by making that tax free for all residential property, I think we truly incentivize more inventory. The third piece, of course, the mortgage interest piece is 
while we are punishing real estate investors, I think we need to leave some avenue for a lot of those people to continue to generate significant amounts of cash flow, significant returns. And my thought was, what we want to encourage at the same time is we want to encourage individuals, funds, institutions to start pouring money into purchase mortgages. So not second liens, not you know, <clears throat> not a HELOC, right? For purchase mortgage. So I think by saying all interest, all income from purchase mortgages are tax-free makes that incredibly valuable, incredibly attractive investment opportunity. So again, it's really, really hard to kind of do the math on this. But from what I can tell, uh, if you have a re residential rental property and you're getting somewhere in the 5 to 10% range in yield, that's pretty good, right? Meaning 5 to 10% of the sale price. So it's like it's a million-dollar house. You know, you're getting, I don't know, uh, $50,000 to $100,000 a year in cash flow. Like that's considered really good net. So after expenses, property management fees, et cetera, et cetera. I'm like, okay, what if you sell that house, you know, because it's not worth holding on to as a, as a, as a landlord, take the money that you're getting tax-free and you put it into a mortgage. You put it into a mortgage fund, which generates, what are rates, 7%. So let's say net of fees, you know, something like six, six and a half percent tax-free. That's pretty good, yo. I mean, that's, you know, given what people's tax rates are, if you're in the top bracket, that's probably close to 9 to 10%. Like, that's a pretty good return because it's tax-free. So, you know, for those retirees, for those, you know, families who are counting on owning, you know, uh, residential investment property to fund their retirement or whatever, I'm not saying it's perfect. I, I'm not saying they won't be hurt. They will be hurt a little bit. But... It is an avenue for them to say, here's an investment that's super solid. It is mortgages, and any income I get from that is tax-free. And I wanted to – I thought that those three things combined, you put that out there. It has to be combined. It can't be separated. Then what it does is it really does make housing a lot more affordable um, for everybody. And I do think what it means is – the notion of rent, like renting just goes away, right? Because if I'm a landlord, why would I ever want to rent anything to anybody? I have to pay 75% tax on it. Um, if I do have some rentals because, I don't know, for whatever reason, um, then yeah, I would have to double my rent just to cover the taxes. So that really sucks for tenants. However, instead of renting, you can actually become an owner right out the gate because one one of the things that I imagine will happen is essentially a lot of seller financing of 0% down mortgages. And that 0% down is important because that way the mortgage note, if you will, the interest amount that you would get is the largest, right? Because it's 100%. <clears throat> um, so even like individual landlords, like you are allowed to do seller finance mortgages, I think up to four times a year before you have to go get a mortgage license or something like that. So if you own one or two investment properties, instead of renting it to this family who stays there for 10 years, you just sell it to them. Zero money down, seller finance mortgage. You make a payment to me every year, every month. And that entire amount comes to me tax-free. 
because any principal repayment is not taxed anyway. And interest income under, you know, sort of my proposal would also be tax free. I think that makes it really attractive. And it ends up with likely the same or better sort of return on investment than holding onto the house, having to be a landlord, having to property management, all of the expenses. And for the tenant slash quote unquote tenant, over time that like you actually do end up building equity in this home. So if after five years you decide, you know what, it's time to move, you could literally sell that house, right? And you sell it tax-free, by the way, right? And whatever equity you have, that's yours. So it's sort of portable. You don't have to make the mortgage portable. The equity is portable. So you're on the property ladder. That feels like a better outcome, at least for, I mean, especially for sort of the younger generations that I'm very, very concerned about. So that's my proposal. Now, the downsides. There are downsides. Um you know, like there's no perfect solution, right? There's always trade-offs. The downside is it hurts people like me, uh, you know, older 50s, own our own home. And we've seen the value of our real estate, our homes, like go up dramatically. Our home values will probably drop because simply just inventory, right? You know, I think 35% of the housing inventory in the United States are owned by investors, they're rentals. So all of that's going to hit the market. So yeah, our home value is going to drop. If if you are sort of older and you are really counting on selling your home to fund your retirement, you're going to get hurt. And there's just no doubt about it, right? Um, because you thought, hey, you know, my house is worth $2 million. I'm going to sell it. I'm going to retire. And after something like this, your house might only be worth a million. Right. It might be over 500000 and there's not enough to fund your retirement. That's a real big problem. Not going to sugarcoat that, I guess. I don't know if there's a way around that. I don't know if there's a, something you can do, you know, like grandfather people in or something to make that not as, uh, not as horrible. Um, but that's a real downside. There are probably some unlikely downsides, unanticipated consequences. For example, I don't know what the impact to the tax receipts would be, right? Because it's clearly by making things tax-free, you know, it's a tax expenditure. It affects the treasury. Um, I don't know how big that is, like the capital gains tax from a lot of these. It could be significant. So I don't know, you know, how the, uh, the impact of that. I haven't calculated that yet. I may have to. And obviously there are going to have to be some exclusions and some exceptions like student housing. Yeah, I'm not selling my condo to a freshman who's only there. You know, like I, I get it. So maybe we do have to exempt certain types of rental income from that punitive tax. Um, but I still think we should make real estate transfers tax free because that immediately, I think, unlocks some inventory. As a lot of people are sitting on, you know, houses that have appreciated like crazy, and they're like, I don't want to sell because I don't have to pay taxes on it. If you remove that tax, I think a number of them would be like, cool, it's time to sell and you know move out of state or do whatever. I think a lot of retirees, especially in high rent areas like California, New York, maybe Chicago, Illinois, some you know, a lot of those folks, a lot of the older folks would be like, Cool, tax free, time to sell. Don't wait 
don't like wait to die and leave it to the kids, you know, just sell it tax free, take the proceeds, invest in something else. I think that would happen. Anyway, God, this is hard. So I think I managed to make almost 40 minutes here all flying solo. So uh, hopefully uh, Greg will appreciate it. And uh, next time he has to fly solo, I think he should have to match my time to do this. Uh, with that said, uh, thanks everybody for listening to me ramble. Uh, really appreciate it. We should have Greg back next week. And, um, you know, if you have any thoughts, any protests, uh, Rob, you, I hate you, whatever, you know, leave comments. <laughs> you know where to find me. We'd love to have a conversation. Thanks, everybody. Peace.